You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. E.J., we're here. We're going to dig into a what, in my mind, um, is probably maybe too fresh of a question. And and <laughs> I, I generally speaking, when you and I meet, I like to come with stuff that I've had some time to process over a, a yeah. long period of time. But this one, this one's fresh. Um, in the last couple of days, how do we know when theology actually is starting to lead us away from God? Yeah. How how do we actually know when Bible study done in the wrong way or biblical scholarship or something like that is actually in a way causing our faith in God, in Jesus, to be undermined and challenged? The, the, the reality is that theology can be harmful. Yeah, um, yeah, theology totally. can be wildly, wildly, wi- I'm saying this as a theologian, was a lot of you know, life invested in the discipline of theology. I'm a big believer in the importance of theology, but I have also seen the dark side of theology. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's the pursuit of knowledge about God that somehow leads us away from knowledge of God. Yeah. Um, it's, it's this sense of like, we become the smartest guy in the room, and before we know it, we've lost our fear for the Lord. And yeah, we've lost yeah. our 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 wonder and our humility and our submission to God. We begin to, we start knowing more than God in our minds. We start knowing yeah. more than God in our minds. D- does that does that hit? I mean, is that popping for you, Nijay? Does that I mean, is that something you've experienced? Yeah, it makes me think of a couple things. I mean, I mean, you kind of you kind of uh, put your finger on it because um, there is a, a distinct approach. Not all academic approaches end up like that, right? But there's a distinct academic approach that can seem kind of full of hubris, and I know better than God, and I know better than the Bible, and kind of laughs, you know, scoffs at, you know, just what you said, the simple faith of belief. And what it makes me think of is, you know, when my daughter uh, Libby uh, was young, she had cancer, she's cancer-free now, but we had to give her chemo. And what's interesting is chemo is a treatment that literally kills parts of your body. <laughs> it's a weird, it's a weird idea of treatment that, you know, you're basically taking poison. There was like a skull and crossbones on the pill bottle that I would use. I'd have to, I'd have to wear gloves because I'm touching it every day. And I'm thinking I have to wear gloves. This is going in her mouth, <laughs> you know, oh. but there's an interesting, you know, when you're a physician, you know, oncologist, there's an interesting balance because you want the chemo to be strong enough to kill the bad stuff, but not so strong you kill the person. Yeah. Right? You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. yeah. And deconstructing is kind of like taking chemo. It's kind of like taking theological chemo. Mm. And you're wow. killing idols, you're killing the bad stuff that you received from a bad church or in your childhood or misunderstandings, or whatever it is, cultural baggage. But if you take too much of it or the not the right dose for your body or take it too too fast too soon, right? You you know, you might die. I mean, this it it, it might kill your faith. 
in the same way that we would have to get Libby's blood levels checked before we give her, you know, another round of whatever. Um, and it's kind of like that with our faith. We need to get our blood levels checked to make sure we have enough white blood cells, red blood cells, platelets, plasma, so that we can handle that kind of deconstructive radiation or treatment or whatever you call it. Nijay, you would affirm, no doubt, wouldn't you? You would affirm that there is and can be a wildly redemptive value to an environment where your faith is challenged. It's not that that's a bad thing. Like chemo, it can it can undo some of the, the gross stuff in our faith, the bad stuff in our faith. But there comes a point where you need to stop the chemo. Because if yeah. you take it too far, it can move from healing you to killing you. Is that, is that essentially what, what you're saying? Yeah, totally. You know, you think about, you know, painkillers, right? Painkillers are meant to help you. But, you know, obviously people get addicted, they overdose, and they can kill you. And I do think that's part of it. Let, let me tell you a story that might kind of, you know, a similar kind of story that might add some clarification. Um, about 10 to 15 years ago, I was teaching at a Christian college, not the same one as this story, but I was teaching at a Christian college. And, you know, there are about 20 faculty that taught in the religion department, and we taught the gen ed courses where all the students have to take these courses on Bible and theology. And this was before my time, but when they had introduced this curriculum, they were just hammering at critical academic studies from the beginning. And they just saw student faith disintegrate. They just couldn't handle the weight of this, telling them about JEDP and the documentary hypothesis of Genesis that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch or that such and such stories in the Gospels didn't happen, or the Book of Acts is not historically reliable, or the speeches in Acts aren't, aren't word for word, all the stuff. And, you know, it just was overwhelming. So get this, instead of starting for your freshman year taking Christian scripture with all this kind of weighty criticism, I think this was a wise idea. They actually started, they changed the curriculum, they started where the freshmen take a course on about Christian faith, which is a kind of light introduction of Christianity. Mm. So I think you can't, you can't go straight to full dose chemo. <laughs> you yeah. got to ease your way into it. And so it was interesting when I started teaching there, they did have these courses, but um, I remember talking to an older colleague and I said, you know, there are a lot of students who are really resistant to studying the Bible in an academic way. Um, they're really resistant to some of the tools that we're using. Like, how do you handle that? How, like you feel like some of the students are kind of against you. You know, and I'm mm -hmm. so I would be one of these people teaching critical things, and the students are kind of have their walls up, they have their guard up, they they don't want to listen to you, they don't trust you. And I'll never forget what this wonderful mentor said. He said, Nijay, um, I spend the first three weeks of the semester just showing them how much I love Jesus, and mm -hmm. then we develop a relationship of trust. And honestly, AJ, I think that's missing in those places where they're, I think it's okay to teach critical discussion, critical theory, deconstructive kind of stuff, but it's not couched. It's not framed within a deep love of mm -hmm. God mm -hmm. that rests on the old, old story and the simple faith. And so I think many of us scholars are taught to, to have two lives. 
our simple faith life where we're singing hymns at church and then our academic life where, you know, we surgically use these tools to deconstruct. And um, I think our students desperately need an integration there where we're able to respond and say, hey, I've learned that X, Y, Z is not exactly true the way I heard it in Sunday school, but listen, I believe the old, old story. You know, I love mm. Jesus. Yeah. There are things I don't understand. And I might not even be right. You know, I, mean, yep. Yep. I think, I think that's missing, right? I think students can handle some of these things, but I don't think we frame it in a way where they understand why I would still be a Christian if I really believed the certain things that I believe about the Bible or theology. Man, that, that is so, that is so right. Can I, can I just one want to add to the, yeah. the idea of beginning with three weeks of, their, their passionate love for, for God. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, in the, in the realm of um, ecological studies, which is kind of my background, getting Christians to talk about the environment is a really tricky business because it, it, it intersects with theology, Bible politics, most importantly, identity in terms of one's civic duty. You know, if you're, it's, it's assumed that if you care for the environment, you're progressive, some, some sort of right, hogwash right, like right. that. So it's a really hard conversation to get Christians to talk about but the master at the conversation that I have ever seen, the, the, the master is Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist. Mm. She's an evangelical Christian. She's a climate scientist. And she will, I, I was in a room with her. This was something like 10 years ago. And she was going to come in and just give a full, like full-throated uh, understanding of what humans have done to the environment. But she, so mm. she, And she's in there with a group of about 30 um, white conservative pastors from portland and i was i'd set the meeting up we'd brought Catherine had been brought in the pastors are there and i was i was sort of terrified what was going to happen and we had three hours with her and she spent the first hour just talking about her conversion story what jesus means to her how she wakes up every day and prays and talks to god how she reads scripture it was as though so the entire room shifted simply because she was a confessional follower of Jesus. Yes. She had genuine. the authority to be able to help individuals understand. And by the time the whole thing was done, there was a group of 30 conservative thinkers from the city of Portland who had more awareness and understanding of what humans have done to the environment simply because it came from somebody who was head over heels for Jesus. Now that also, we say that, that can also cool. be weaponized because yeah. somebody can use their confession as a way to manipulate. It's totally yeah, possible. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah. it is it is possible. So we're not saying that just because somebody claims to to love Jesus, that somehow way shape shape or form means that Makes everything they right. say is yeah. right. Uh, Arius mm-hmm. in the early church claimed to love Jesus, but you know, his theology was hot garbage. So just because you say <laughs> you love Jesus doesn't doesn't sure. baptize the whole the whole thing. But that's absolutely right. Like, like it, those questions are critical. They're important and they're good as long as they're in the context of covenantal love. In a married yeah. situation, you should be asking hard questions of your spouse. But if those questions are not in the context of covenantal relationship, it ends up eroding the marriage. You know, um, DJ, DJ, just, just, okay, you go ahead and say something. And then I, then I, I want to, I want to pose an idea to go. What do you think? Well, you know, when I think about this whole issue of, um, kind of the limits of deconstruction, the context, I think about a famous story in the 1940s 
and, and 50s with um, Billy Graham and uh, his older mentor, Charles Templeton, mm, who was a very yep. intelligent fellow, um, fellow evangelist, and they were involved with Youth, Youth for Christ. They would travel together and preach the gospel. And they were young. They were like high school age. And Templeton, a little bit older, uh, went off to seminary at Princeton Seminary, I think. And he ended up coming back and sharing how he's basically lost his faith. He's so smart. He knows better. And he basically wants Billy to give up on kind of the evangelistic track and go to seminary, learn the truth. And I remember from reading about their story, I think this was through a Lee Strobel book, but I remember that, you know, Billy Graham was so confused. You know, this is the fifties, his, his whole future is in front of him. And he kneels down and he prays to God and he says, God, you know, I don't, I, I love and trust Charles, my good friend, but, um, you know, I, I want to follow you and I don't want to do anything that's going to, that's going to ruin that. And I'm not saying seminary is always going to ruin your faith, but I remember many, many years later, I think, I think it was Strobel, but, but some people interviewed Templeton when he was at the end of his life and he had long been an agnostic or atheist. And I, I remember this and I read this book. 20, 30 years ago, but I remember him saying, I miss Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I'm not saying it has to be a choice between faith and knowledge. I'm not saying that. But I respect Graham for saying, um, no matter what I learn, this relationship with Jesus is the most important thing. Yes. Honestly, AJ, I think in those in those moments when we're taking those classes or going to that seminar or reading that book, it really tests whether we really had a relationship with God or not. Mm-hmm. And whatever, you know, I remember talking to a good friend and he is really well acquainted with and into all of the heavy critical scholarship, all the stuff. And I remember asking him, you know, hey, how does that affect your faith? And it was funny. He didn't bat an eye and he said, Nijay, it doesn't affect my faith at all because my faith is not dependent on those things. It's dependent on my personal relationship with God. And that has never changed. Wow. To have faith Mm. like that, right? Where it's like, no matter what I learn, no matter what someone says, I, you know, the spirit testifies to my spirit, right? This is a Wesleyan principle that comes from Romans, you know, the, the spirit testifies to my spirit that I'm a child of God and nothing I read is going to change that. I think the good part about some of these experiences, it really makes us realize, do I have a relationship with God or do I have knowledge about God? Mm-hmm. It, it tests that. Uh, there's a difference between a, a crisis of understanding and a yeah. crisis of faith, which maybe I've sure. mentioned before, but we, we tend to think that because we've been introduced to questions or we've been introduced to challenges, that all of a sudden we're in a crisis of faith. And, and we, we shouldn't assume that, that no. a crisis of faith is not the same thing as a crisis of understanding. More often than not, really what's going on is we just don't fully understand yet. Hmm. Nijay, what do you think about this? Let me let me put this let me let me put this at you in, from the New Testament. Okay, when when theology leads us away from God, you'd even put it this way: when theology kills God. <laughs> when I say kill God, I don't mean literally like kills God, but I mean like kills yeah. our relationship to God. To us, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the the you know the the environment of Jesus, the environment that Jesus is born into, uh, 
in the New Testament first century world. Um, it's a very, you know, religiously uh, dense moment in history. You, you have, you know, Ju- Judaism has been going through a lot of changes. It's been going through a major diversification. It's been spreading mm-hmm. throughout the world. You've got Gentiles coming to faith, bringing their culture with them. That the Judaism in the first century is really undergoing really a watershed moment in its history. It's almost becoming a global religion at that point. And um, you have this emergence of different groups of, of religious leaders who are tasked with different, you know, responsibilities. So the Sadducees, for example, um, are tasked with the responsibility of caring for the temple. So they're, they're the stewards of the sacred space, which explains why they disappear after, uh, 70 and the destruction of the temple because they, mm-hmm. I mean, their literal, their place of you know work was no longer there. Um, you have the zealots, you have the, um, the Herodians, you have the Essenes, you've got all these different classes, groups of people, you got the Pharisees. So when Jesus comes, John one begins with when Jesus came, he was not recognized by his own. Um, he was not recognized by his own people. He was not recognized no. necessarily by his own religious tradition. He was not recognized by his own culture. He was he was not recognized. He was not seen in his time, we, which is normal for a prophet. We almost always love prophets after they're dead. It's when they're living <laughs> that we can't stand them. Right. Um, they didn't recognize him. They didn't see the prophet. They didn't see Jesus for who he was. They didn't see the king of kings that he was. Who was it that exhibits the most passionate dislike, knee-jerk hatred of the way of Jesus. It's not the common people. Uh, the common right. people generally found a lot of, uh, a lot of favor with favor, Jesus. They, yeah. they found Jesus to be quite a favorable individual. Um, the crowds actually come to Jesus a lot. They're often drawn to Jesus. Um, who are the people who have the most hostility towards Jesus when he actually comes? And it, of course, it, it was it was largely the theologians who got Jesus crucified. Mm, yeah. It it yeah. was it was the most well trained, well, you know, the the folks that had done their exegesis yeah, and had the taken their exegetic the scribes who knew the most, who should have known the King of Kings when he came, but they didn't. And we see just this odd paradox, this odd almost it just surprised that the ones who are most hostile to God when he comes are the ones that most know the things about God. Yeah. Ironic. Yeah. Does that mean that anybody like yourself or myself or a scholar or a human or normal person, anybody who just knows a bunch of Bible, we don't know God? No, that's not what we're saying at all. But there can easily become a sort of an inculcated spirit of arrogance and pride that we don't want God. We want our thoughts about God. We don't want to worship God when he comes. We want to guard and protect the image that we've created in our mind about who God is. And that is where theology and and even biblical studies can be, can be a dangerous realm, is that it ends up becoming an exercise in the construction of idols more than it's a place to enter into an increasing wonder in the person of Jesus, God, the Trinity, so on and so forth. 
you know, there's the question then, how do you know when to stay and how do you know when to leave? My instinct is, you know, this could be a church. This could be putting away a book <laughs> that you're reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could yeah. be a seminary. It could be an online discussion, you know, group or whatever it is. Um, I would say, you know, tell me if, if you think this advice is, is resonates. Um, I'd say it comes down to trust. Do you trust yeah. the, the teachers and the institution to guide you? Because I do think, you know, when it comes to something, especially like college, um, these decisions shape who we are. And what you don't want is to go somewhere that's just going to kind of pat you on the back and not challenge you. Yep. But at the same time, there's an extreme where you can go where they're not going to feed you and lead you and teach you and guide you in a healthy, formative way. So I would, you know, I would have that kind of reckoning and say, um, even though the teachings are hard, do I trust these people as mentors and guides? I might even have conversations with them, conversations with the chaplain there and just say, you know, I'm not sure if I trust this place to guide my faith. Yeah. I, I think that's what I would do is I would, I would try to figure out whether, whether they, they could rely on that place to lead them well. And in addition to that, um, do I trust, well, having a rubric to know what shows me that I can trust the person. How, what shows yeah. me that I can yep. trust the teacher? So what is the rubric? What's my rubric? Is it that they um, they just seem like nice people? Good Lord, that better not be a rubric. Uh, is it? Is it? <laughs> or that, that they, they seem like smart people, and that's not yes, necessarily right. good either. Did, did they? Did they? Ha- do they have a PhD? Good Lord, if you think that that is what uh, what helps <laughs> you know what uh, truthfulness is, um, tr- truth in the history of the church, we we all know this truth. Lies are often peer reviewed. Just because something has been peer reviewed doesn't, for <laughs> yeah. one second, mean that it's that it's that past true. What? Yeah. yeah. So I think what, one really simple way. It's specifically in the realm of theology and faith. So if we are we are talking about not somebody taking biology courses or somebody taking like a sociology course, but specifically in the realm of places that are created to form our faith, theology, Bible study courses, these sorts of things, or those sorts of environments, is have have the instructors and teachers who are tasked with this job over my life, have they exhibited a, a piety that is worth following? And when I say a piety worth following, what I mean by that is when I was doing my PhD work, I made a decision about where I wanted to go to school based on a couple things, but number one for me, and I got into a great PhD program, but mm-hmm. the number one thing for me is I wanted to work with somebody who I knew at the end of the day had my faith maturity as one of their most important issues and that they loved yeah, God. And, and honestly, that they went to church. Dr. Mark Cartledge mm-hmm. was my advisor. He's now head of school at London School of Theology loves God with everything in his being. He has he goes to church with his family. They pray, they do Bible studies. He is such a deeply rooted Christian. It was so important to me. If I was going to hand somebody my faith to be formed, I wanted to ensure they were people that actually had faith. Can you imagine sure. the irony of going to medical school and having a doctor teach you how to be a doctor who does not believe in medicine? <laughs> I mean, it would just be so profoundly right. awkward to learn yeah, how to be a doctor from somebody who doesn't believe in medicine. Same as same same 
in the realm of theology, if your instructors and teachers have not exhibited a piety of love for Jesus in their, in their actual lives, why in the world would you want to learn the faith from them? It, may, it would make yeah. no sense. Yeah, and it's the same with church, right? And and making sure, you know, I've been to churches that are that are kind of more like little think tanks, little theological think tanks, and they're not really about fostering faith as much as just, you know, having a, a really smart, you know, Bible study. That's that's dangerous. Um mm-hmm. but I want to add one more thing and and maybe I'm overstepping or overreaching here, but um I I'd, I'd say it also depends on your personality. And some people's personality, like me, are highly impressionable. I can't help but absorb yep. what my teachers are teaching me. Whereas I know other people's personalities where they're like Teflon, nothing sticks to them. <laughs> yes. And yep. they can yep. handle being in a more critical environment and it doesn't really affect their faith. It doesn't wrinkle and rankle them. It's funny, my wife, when she's talking to me about people that she knows that I don't know, she has to be careful what she says about them because... If she says something negative about them, I'll immediately hate them. <laughs> I can't uh, form my own impressions uh. of them or because I'm impressionable. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like a beanbag. You, you sit on me and it's just yep. going to be stuck that way forever. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like people are like that, but other people are Teflon and just nothing will stick to them. They can handle being in an environment. So for a PhD program, like you said, you want to stay with a Christian other people, they can study with someone with a different faith or with a different, and it doesn't really affect them. And I think that that's worth acknowledging. I, I know me, and I know that I need to be in a place where I'm going to be like cradled like a baby, right? That's going to, yep. I'm going to, because I am I just have a natural trust in my teachers and leaders. Yep, yep, yep. yep. And, and, and that's just who I am. Yep. So I'll be, yeah, let me let me close with a just a, a nerdy image. I, I remember years ago, I was <laughs> preaching I was preaching uh, somewhere, and I had this uh, this image that came to my mind. We're we're all going to be shaken. All of us are going to be shaken. Mm. Um, are we going to be Polaroids, or are we going to be etch a sketches? Wow! Cause, Did cause, you just come up with that? No, well, years ago. Yeah, I'm bringing, oh, okay. I'm bringing up the old <laughs> treasures here, bro. The old treasures. Good. The old treasures. I'm gonna write that. We are either going to be shaken, and the picture is going to disappear. Or we're going to be shaken and the picture's going to become Ooh, I love it. Preach it. And we're all going to be shaken. And ask yourself, in being shaken, is the shaking making Jesus clear to you? Mm. Or is the shaking causing you to lose the picture? Yeah. Make decisions that where you're going to put yourself in environments where the picture gets clearer. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Yes. But the shaking to lead to a deeper love for Jesus, not an abandonment of the way of Jesus. Nijay, love it. Until love next it. time.